Welcome everyone to the Religious Learning Program. I'm your host Cameron Zurich. Today we have with us Jonathan Burke, also known as Jono from Taipei, Taiwan. He is a regular contributor to the Religious Learning uh, Quarterly Magazine, which will come out uh, March 31st, which will probably be after this podcast. Uh, and he's the author of Crucified with Christ, Sleeping in the Dust, Rightly Dividing the Word, and living on the edge, and living on the edge is uh, part of it is the subject of this podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Cameron. Great to hear from you again. So, <clears throat> your book, I, I guess, would be classified as apologetics. What exactly is apologetics? Apologetics actually comes from a passage in the Bible. It comes from Stephen's speech in Acts to the Sanhedrin when he was brought on trial. And it comes from the Greek word actually for a legal defense. And if you have a look at the, the Greek text of the New Testament in that passage, you'll see that it uh, refers to uh, Stephen's apologia or um, his uh, formal defense of his faith. So early in Christianity, that term of apologia was actually borrowed and used for Christian defences of the faith, and in, of course, as you'd be aware, in the early days especially, it was quite often a, a legal defence since Christianity for a long time was actually illegal. And in the second century in particular, um, the early Christian writers were focused largely on justifying their faith to the local authorities and also defending their faith from criticism and pointing out that Christianity was a wholesome and worthwhile and and good faith, and that it had uh, not only had a right to stand alongside Judaism and the pagan religions, but was actually better better than than they were. Not just in terms of uh, relationship to God and the supernatural, but also in terms of better life outcomes. And so, those early Christian writers of the second century are today formally known as the apologists. So. <clears throat> What made you write uh, Living on the Edge? What Was there a need for this kind of book? Actually, um, I have to say, first of all, my motivation was very strongly personal. I had, um, when I was growing up, for example, I, ha I had um, uh, some kind of introduction to, an early introduction to apologetics in my Sunday school years. When I was in senior Sunday school, there was a a brother who uh, started a couple of uh, some series of classes w with us, which were very unlike the other classes that we'd done, which were basically all about Bible study and understanding the gospel and the Old Testament. And I was intrigued by this because what he was doing was he was saying, okay, what we're going to do here is we're going to try and figure out or try and um, explain how we know the Bible is true. And he said, and he started off by saying, all right, now when we're looking at the, the Bible, how, how the Bible is true and have ways of demonstrating it, then we can examine the Bible uh, using internal evidence and external evidence. And for this series of classes, he, he brought us through a number of uh, methods of demonstrating the veracity of the Bible. And this whole approach I thought was really quite remarkable it was it was well structured it was intelligent it was it was fairly basic uh, i mean it was sunday school level but it really gave me a handle on how to approach discussing the bible with unbelievers and that was really important to me because when where i was growing up in in tasmania and part of australia um in actual fact 
as a religious person, I was in a minority in my community. Even when I went to school, um, I mean, by, even by the, when I was in in high school, there were probably literally only about half a dozen kids who were actually religious. Okay, so in the local community, atheism was pretty much the default position. So I actually did receive on a regular basis challenges and criticism to my faith. Consequently, I had a strong interest in being able to defend that faith, and these Sunday school classes were uh, really of great interest to me. In fact, shortly after that, I actually was involved in, in discussions with a friend, an atheist friend who, who was challenging me on my faith, and I drew immediately on my Sunday school classes, and we ended up with a very long discussion of, of over an hour in which I went over went over the, uh, uh, the, the the evidence that I'd learned and the, and the method and applied it, which was, you know, I was very pleased about. And then, because I thought this was, this, this was just making sense of everything, and uh, it was a very long conversation, as I said. And obviously, obviously even though my, my atheist friend wasn't convinced, what I was strongly, uh, what I was strongly convicted of was that this was definitely the right approach, because... In the end, he did have to give some ground. Okay, okay, he didn't concede everything, but what he did do was he he could see that I actually had a strong defence of my faith, and at that point, he could see there wasn't really much um, there wasn't really much to, to be gained from from trying to attack it because I obviously had a position which was not readily assailable. So that gave me some insight into why this was this kind of method was important now around the same time um maybe shortly afterwards my grandfather actually gave me a, a book written by a american evangelical called josh mcdowell and it was, it was called evidence that deserves a verdict and that was my first introduction to what you might refer to as formal evidential apologetics evidential apologetics is Apologetics based on uh, demonstrable evidence. This is as opposed to uh, other, uh, say, spiritual-based or, or simply um, well, what a lot of people would refer to as blind faith or presuppositional apologetics, where you start by assuming the belief in God and start by assuming that, that the Bible is true, and then you simply uh, defend the Bible on that point of view, which I have always found circular. And I was really captivated by this book. It was written, I think, in the this, this particular edition was in the early 70s or, or 80s, and it was designed for university students, and I was a university student at the time. So I was really intrigued by this, and I was really, really impressed by the amount of evidence. There was archaeological evidence, there was textual evidence, there was this internal and external evidence. Um, he drew on a wide range of, of scholarly literature and sources, and I thought, this is really impressive. And I decided that this, this was the, the kind of approach that would be very effective, and I wanted to learn more about it. Later, I managed to find on my own uh, a second volume, uh, More Evidences for a Verdict, Verdict by Josh McDowell, and I was uh, really taken by that, and I started decided to... Uh, to try and get to some more resources of this kind because I believe this was very important. It was particularly important to me because by the time I was in my later university years, my uh, younger brother had already started to drift away from the faith. He'd been raised in, in the Christadelphian community but never been baptised. 
And by the time I was doing my, my master's degree, my sister also, who had originally had a strong faith, had likewise drifted away and before she was baptized, even though at one point she was preparing for baptism. And I felt very strongly the need for uh, Christadelphian young people to be equipped with very a very good, robust, evidential-based defense of their faith. So this was my where my interest in apologetics started, and it had very strong personal motivation, as you can see, not just for myself, but also from the point of view of uh, losing my brother and sister, my younger brother and sister, to atheism, which was um, a really of a deep concern to me. Later on, especially during the time when I was doing my master's degree and then when I was working later, uh, of course, the internet started to become a thing and internet access um, started to become ubiquitous. And I found that the internet was a fantastic resource for evidence uh, in order to build a robust apologetic. And it was at this point that I started to become more discerning in my selection of material. I was able to examine, for example, a lot of the claims that, that and verify the, the, the claims that Josh McDowell had made. And I was really pleased to see that the evidence that, that he provided was good and generally his books were very quite accurate. But what I also found was that in a number of places, they were quite out of date. And in some places, he had pushed the evidence a little bit too far, either through lack of knowledge of the of the, of the actual source material, or uh, because he was just a rather a bit too over enthusiastic about a point. And I found that there was, for example, there was scholarly commentary uh, demonstrating that this particular piece of evidence might not be as as solid as as um, I had first thought. And what I found in particular was that, especially in the field of archaeology. A lot had changed since his time, so I needed to be up to date. And I found um, one very, very good online Christian apologetic resource by an evangelical Christian in the States um, who really, really impressed me because uh, apart from the fact that for the, for the most part he kind of kept his religion on the outside, he, he, he put his religion outside when he was, um, he was examining a question, he was trying to he was trying to approach the uh, each challenge of the Bible, each apologetic challenge, as objectively as possible. And what I was most impressed was he used a very methodical, evidence-based, logical method, and he had a ton of sources, an extremely large, he had access to extremely large library, and his articles were full of footnotes and quotes and citations of the relevant scholarly literature. And I was really impressed by this. It demonstrated that somebody had gone to the uh, the extent of actually looking through the relevant sources and then verifying it and then actually putting together a very good coherent article which had very strong support from a wide range of sources. That influenced me uh, quite dramatically and um, I basically spent an enormous amount of time on his site over, over the years and that led me to the, the same kind of approach. It was around this time that I started deciding that I would be writing. I needed, we needed to start writing apologetic material, which had strong evidence, a strong evidential basis, and also drew widely on relevant professional literature. Something I I discovered in my debate on with um, atheists online, which was now becoming quite a quite a habit, was that they were extremely allergic to Christian arguments, 
But when you presented them with an argument substantiated from scholarly literature, all of a sudden they would start to grind to a halt because it was one thing to try and dispute with a Christian or disagree with a Christian's opinion of a passage. But if they were faced with an interpretation or, or an archaeologist or a commentary from, from a, a historian which substantiated my point, and that historian was non-Christian or was, was secular or uh, was a professional in their field, then they had very little basis on which to dispute that. So I found that this was the way to go. This was what I had to do. Uh, and around the same time, since I had a number of other friends who were who were having issues with either ha having issues with atheism or new pe people who were, I became convinced this was the next big serious challenge to our community. And this was what ultimately led me to write Lote. Now, you, you mentioned evidence is important in, in apologetics, and you kind of touch on uh, blind faith. Uh, the term a lot of times you uh, listeners may read but don't know what it really is, is fideism. Can you explain fideism? Sure. I'll start by looking at the word faith. Now, faith is often equated with blind faith, and wrongly so. Even if you look in a dictionary entry, you'll, you'll find that faith is not necessarily blind, although most atheists will tell you it's oh, it's belief for no, for no reason at all. Faith is strong conviction or belief, which is based on, which is not based on proof. However, this does not mean that it is not based on evidence, and there is a difference. And of course, with your legal background, you'll understand the difference between evidence and proof. And anybody uh, from a scientific background will also understand the difference between evidence for, and proof. Obviously, proof is a, a verifiable, testable, and demonstrable evidence which leads to a conclusion which is verifiable. Evidence, on the other hand, it, it can be interpreted in, in different ways and may provide some support for a belief, but is not necessarily conclusive. However, belief which is founded, or faith which is founded on evidence, is necessarily not blind faith. By definition, it is not belief without evidence. It is belief on the basis of evidence. And in fact, of course, as I mentioned before, in, in uh, legal circles, quite a lot of the uh, quite a lot of the importance of a, of a legal case often turns on the on the uh, the fact that the uh, the evidence is sufficient to substantiate um, sufficient to substantiate a reasonable conclusion even if that conclusion cannot be completely proved at least in a formal logical sense or in a or in a scientific sense now fideism is this idea that you don't need evidence in order to have a valid faith. And this is really, by definition, blind faith. It's faith which is not based on evidence. It is faith which is based on prior belief or presupposition. In fact, the, the whole uh, process of apologetics of fideism is referred to as presuppositionalism or presuppositional apologetics. Firstly, you assume God exists, you assume Christianity is true, you assume the Bible is is accurate, and then you advance from there. So you make a whole bunch of assumptions or, of course, presuppositions before you move on, and you're actually basing your, your faith um, 
on these presuppositions rather than on evidence. So that's fideism. I consider fideism to be spiritually toxic, apart from logically irrational, although some rather complex philosophical um, attempts have been made to try and um, defend it, especially um, in reform circles by reformed theologians. And I don't find it in the Bible. In fact, I find it the, the, the opposite of the approach taken in the Bible. So would you say that fideism may lead to atheism? I, I believe that's an extremely likely, um, extremely likely possibility because the main problem is that fideism can operate and succeed in a bubble. But in my experience, fideism has to be preserved from contact with the real world. If you are constantly presented with evidence that contradicts your worldview, it's extremely mentally exhausting. And obviously, if you're also con confronted regularly with people whose beliefs contradict yours and whose beliefs are based on evidence, then it's very likely that you're going to be influenced by that. Apart from that, anything else, fideism is an extremely hard sell to anybody who believes that belief should be based on evidence. And that is the very largely in many um, Christian countries or ex-Christian countries or post-Christian countries, I should say, exactly the kind of situation that we are facing. If we are serious about preaching, we need to preach to people who don't believe. And it's extremely difficult to preach to people who don't believe by saying, I've got this great idea that you need to believe. Oh, by the way, I don't have any evidence and you shouldn't ask for any. Uh, you mentioned uh, you, on the internet you're having having to uh, argue with uh, atheism. Uh, there is a new branch of atheism called New Atheism. What is New Atheism and contrast it with traditional atheism? Okay, New Atheism, I'd, I'd say New Atheism, new atheism was uh, popularized largely in the 1990s. And I'll say two points about New Atheism. It was called New Atheism because it was, uh, you could call it a, a kind of a, a new approach to atheism. Instead of the, the, what you might call the classical atheism, which was based on uh, perhaps philosophical arguments and some kind of materialist arguments um, from science um, and maybe some some um, attacks on Christianity from, you know, the traditional um alleged contradictions in the Bible and this kind of thing. The new atheism was actually trying to engage with the the broader community, actually trying to engage with a broader society and argue that atheism was actually uh, an ethically and morally superior position to Christianity. So not just simply attempting to, to criticize, criticize Christianity from an atheist point of view, but actually you might say... Um, uh, to borrow a word from a religious context, evangelical atheism, actually trying to convince people that atheism is a worldview that they should adopt for better life outcomes. Okay, this is actually why one of the reasons one of the reasons why a number of people criticised the new atheists as little more than religious dogmatists, because they were saying, okay, but what's the difference between you going going and evangel evangelizing for for atheism and and trying to say, oh, everyone should become atheists? It's, it's, you know, it's a it's a great way to live and it leads to better life outcomes and it's more rational, coherent, and more moral. Um, what's the difference between someone like you saying that 
and a Christian or another religious believer preaching their faith. You, you just sound like a religious believer. And strangely enough, um, a number of atheists were very unhappy with that. And early on, there was quite a divide between the, the new atheism and some of the, uh, the classical atheists who were quite content to criticize um, Christianity and to hold their own beliefs, but didn't see the need to evangelize, as it were, or convert others. So that was that was really one of the... Uh, one of the, um, the standout points of new atheism, which differentiated from the classical atheism, the most well-known um, of the new atheists um, were Richard Dawkins, of course. Dawkins, um, the biologist, very well-known evolutionary biologist. Victor Stenger, who is actually... Uh, has a philosophical background and also background in, in physics. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who uh, was a basically a polemicist writing especially uh, social criticisms of Christianity. And I believe the fourth um, of, the, of the new atheist was Sam. Oh, you have to help me out here. Um, the, and he was an, an ex-Christian ex, um, ex evangelical himself. He had originally been a, been, um, a Christian. I believe there's um, one in Australia as well named Ian Pilmer, maybe? Ian, Ian Plymer? Ian yeah. Plymer, yeah. Actually, Ian Plymer's in a slightly different category. He he was kind of in New Atheist territory, but he wasn't one of the big four, or, or as they used to be called, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, yeah, Sam, I can't remember. You have to look up his, his name for me. Um, I, I can't remember his his name his surname offhand, but but he was um, extremely important in and he and still is extremely important in in new atheism. Um, so this kind of evangelical aspect of the new atheism is uh, part of what differentiated it from um, classical atheism. Now you, you touched on early Christians and using apologetics. Um, did the early Christians teach that the faith was rational and use uh, reason and and rational arguments to uh, support Christianity? Yes, very much so. In fact, as I mentioned, some of the defenses that the early Christians wrote were necessarily <laughs> practically legal defenses since Christianity was actually illegal. And when you have a look at defences of the faith by some of the early apologists, you will find that they draw heavily on evidential apologetics. So, for example, you have Athenagoras, and you have Justin Martyr, and you have Tertullian, all in the, in the early 2nd century. And all of them are drawing on a range of different sources. For example, Athenagoras draws on um, social arguments. He argues that when he was a, um, um, when he was a pagan Greek, um, he held various beliefs which didn't have good life outcomes and didn't have and, and would didn't result in a moral society. He makes the argument that the the Greek gods actually look highly anthropomorphic. They they have exactly the same kind of um, faults, foibles, and vices as humans. And his argument is: How can you actually have a better society based on belief? in people or, or supernatural beings who are in fact morally no better than humans and who often act even worse than them, right? Now this is quite a sophisticated argument when you think about it. And he also makes the point that um, um, 
Christianity has better like outcomes for all members of society. So, for example, he says in Christianity, you know, you 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 have to we we treat um, other people as as our as our brothers. We're viewed to we're encouraged to look on on other humans um, in a in a kindly way. We're encouraged to charity. Um, we're supposed to to treat our, our slaves and servants um, well and. We are supposed to to give alms to the poor and and, and help the needy, um, and he said this is how this this is obviously better than the way I was brought up as as a Greek. So he actually launches a number of uh, sophisticated social arguments. Now Justin Martyr is known in particular for his apologetics against uh, Jewish criticism of Christianity, and one of his most famous famous writings is called Dialogue with Trifo, in which. Uh, he describes a conversation that, or either that a conversation that he had, or at least some form of representation, even if, even if it's not completely accurate, of a conversation he had with a Jew who was criticizing Christianity, or as others believe, um, a collection of typical early Jewish anti-Christian arguments, which he places in the mouth of a hypothetical adversary called Trifo. Regardless, the point is that Justin Martyr was obviously highly aware of typical anti-Jewish arguments against Christianity during the time, and he was focusing his argument on defending defending Christianity's beliefs from the Bible, and defending it from criticism uh, by by Jews who said that it was uh, invalid on the basis that it was insufficiently true to Scripture. So he spent a lot of time in the Old Testament validating the the Old Testament references, um, Old Testament prophecies as the New Testament applies them to Christ, and he had to launch a number of sophisticated arguments about about the text and the meaning of the text, and and this actually uh, is one of the early examples of of people actually disputing the meat. Of the text, this gets down to the, the dif differences in, in hermeneutics, and also in some cases, um, textual issues where he and, and his adversary Trifo are arguing about the translation of a, of a particular passage. Of course, one very early uh, passage which was which was disputed was the Isaiah passage, the the um, the Emmanuel passage about a virgin birth. Now, there's. Uh, this, this was obviously disputed at a very early point. We know we have strong evidence this was disputed by the, the, the Jews at an early point and was actually con considered to be quite problematic. And we know this not only because it's mentioned by the, by the Christians in their defences of Christianity, but also because we actually have evidence that or what was referred to as the Septuagint, or in scholarly terms, more accurately, the Old Greek, because the original translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek didn't happen all at once, but over time and kind of in a piecemeal way, we have evidence that in the pre-Christian era, the Greek, the earliest Greek translations of that passage by Jews, non-Christian Jews, actually did use the Greek word parthenos, which definitely means virgin. Now, the Hebrew word which is used is a, is a, means a, a young girl or a maiden, which can mean a virgin, but doesn't necessarily have to. However, when the early Jewish scribes translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek in the pre-Christian era, they actually did use the word parthenos, which specifically means virgin. And this is obviously what Matthew is citing um, when he refers to that prophecy. Now, 
one of the best evidences we have that this passage was extremely difficult for um, Christian-era Jews who were opposing Christianity is that in the later Christian-era Greek translations of the Hebrew by three Jewish scholars, one was called uh, Aquila, one was called Symmachus, and one was called Theodosian, all of them obviously with, um, with Greek names, but uh, actually Jewish scholars, all of them wrote their own translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and all of them back-translated their own belief into that passage. All of them removed the word parthenos, and they replaced it with a word, a more generic word, which means um, young woman, and with a Greek word that doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. So we know that that was actually, that that passage was a, a big problem for the Jews, and that provides us with evidence that there was actually, there were actual textual disputes going on between Jews and Christians. So obviously, evidence for these kind of textual disputes shows that the Christians were drawing heavily um, on evidence for their faith. And you can see that in particular, as I said, with the, uh, the dialogue between um, between uh, Trifo and Justin Martyr. Tertullian in the uh, mid to late second century launches uh, a range of different arguments in defense of Christianity. And he is one of the earliest, um, one of the earliest Christian writers, along with Hippolytus, writing around the same time, near the end of the, of the second century, who appeals to Bible prophecy in order to validate Christianity to pagan to his pagan audience in particular the Olivet prophecy was used many times by the early apologists and even the later Christians in order to demonstrate that Jesus was from God not only that but a number of the the passages in Daniel and Revelation were also used as evidence that the Bible is true and that the Christian God was the only one who could provide reliable uh, prophecies in fact Hippolytus went so far as to launch, um, I think it was Hippolytus and uh, I think actually Eusebius later in the, in the fourth century in particular, I think it was Eusebius who went so far as to quote Greek writers talking about how Greek oracles had failed. And in fact, we, we know that um, uh, Greek, Greek uh, prophecy and uh, oraculism had actually fallen out of favour and and just almost completely died by the Christian era. And Eusebius says, see how the Greeks themselves uh, record how their, their prophecies have, have failed and, and their oracles have been untrue. And he contrasts this very strongly with prophecies that he says have been fulfilled from, from Daniel and also Revelation. So the early Christians obviously gave evidence, but there's actually precedent for that with the uh, apostles actually in the Bible. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. In fact, all the way through the Bible, uh, there's a strong emphasis on evidential belief. For example, in the Old Testament, you find um, the writer in a number of places, you find the writer appealing to the audience and, and, and providing evidence that what he's saying is true. Now, we might we might even think this is this is a little odd. OK, this is a this is an inspired Hebrew writer who's writing to a believing Hebrew audience, and he's providing evidence that what he says is true, evidence from the real world. He's not just saying, hey, look, you know, God, God told me to write this. You've you got to believe it. This is really interesting because <clears throat> this means that even an inspired writer who has the highest level authority, who is writing to believers, still thinks it's important to provide 
verifiable evidence. And perhaps this even this even demonstrates um, a concern that early Hebrew able to justify their faith to other people, to to non-Hebrews and and to um, to their surrounding pagan neighbours. Um, just as as one example. There's a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 3.11. Only Og, King Og of Bashan was left of the remaining Rephaites. And then there's a, a little note after this. It is noteworthy that his sarcophagus was made of iron. Does it not indeed still remain in Ramath of the Ammonites? It is 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide according to standard measure. So here you have in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is actually talking about... Um, a record of, of how the, the Hebrews defeated the, the Rephaites. And either Moses or a later inspired writer then adds a note saying, and, and you know, King Og of Bashan, who we, just, who we uh, defeated with the Rephaites, you know, his, his sarcophagus, we definitely killed him. You can go and see his sarcophagus. Okay? It, it, it's right over there. You, you can actually verify this for yourself. Um, and here are the dimensions, and you can go there and check it out. Now, that's that's really interesting. I, I think that's extremely interesting because it demonstrates that even um, an inspired writer writing to a believing audience on the highest level of, of authority still thinks it's important to provide evidence that what they are saying is true and to encourage people to go and verify that what they've said is correct. Now, of course, the apostles did this themselves in some of their, their um, early preaching speeches. In Acts 10, for example, um, we are witnesses of all the things that God did, other that Jesus did, both in Judea and Jerusalem. Okay, They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and caused him to be seen, not, all, not by all the people, but by us, the witnesses God had already chosen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And again, um, in Acts 5, 30 to 32, the God of our forefathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging on a, on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these events. And again, as you know, uh, Paul in his own writings appealed repeatedly to eyewitness testimony of people who had met with Jesus. And he, and he says that uh, uh, he was seen by Upwards of you know uh, several thousand people, and not only that, he said many of those people are still alive today. So it's obviously uh, important to Paul that people are able to personally verify what he is telling them. All the way through the the New Testament, in particular, you find appeal to eyewitness testimony. You find at the end of um, um, John's Gospel when he's describing the events of the crucifixion, he says, "I saw." He well, rather, he says he says that that um, he's describing the the. The, the spear wound of, of Christ, verifying that he was actually dead. And he said, we think we've um, seen these things. Our witness is true. So there's obviously a very important emphasis here on what we would refer to today as evidential apologetics, on actually making a case from demonstrable, verifiable evidence. And this is the model for the early Christian faith, as taught by Christ and the apostles. Christ himself, of course, was... An evidentialist, he, he referred to the fact that well, um, if if you don't believe when I'm doing all these miracles, well, well how else are you going to believe me? Um, he points to the the scriptures as validation for his 
uh, for his mission and validation that he is the Christ. He, he points to his miracles as evidence that, that God is with him. And he points to this evidence. He says, you've got no excuse now. You, you've seen this evidence. So from Christ's point of view, uh, this evidence has strong apologetic value. In today's modern world, their empirical evidence uh, is very important. Is there any benefit to being religious? And if there is, is it important to just be religious or just atheist? What do you need to do? Okay, that's a very cool question. And in fact, um, there's a very large body of evidence that has been studied over an extremely long time, which confirms that being religious has strong empirical and uh, benefit to life outcomes. And in fact, uh, as you would know, I have... A large section on this very subject in my book, Living on the Edge, citing from a wide range of studies showing that there are a number of health benefits, there are benefits to longevity, there are benefits to social cohesion and, and community, there are personal psychological benefits, and there are even long-term uh, financial benefits to being religious. In addition to that, there is evidence demonstrating that not all religious forms of religious belief are valuable and in fact Christianity comes out on top which is extremely important and of course quite significant from the point of view of defending Christianity so not only is religious belief generally a good thing but actually certain forms of religious religious belief are better than others some forms of religious belief are actually not beneficial so it's not it, to put it to put it really really simply it actually really does matter what you believe it's not just enough to be religious but you actually you you actually have to have certain forms of religious belief certain forms of religious belief are more beneficial than others then you get to when you get down to the fine grain detail you find that Christianity generally provides better life outcomes than ever other forms of religious belief but you can go down to even finer grain detail and you will find that certain strains of Christianity and certain forms of Christian belief provide better outcomes than others. In particular, there's been um, a large body of evidence amassed demonstrating that belief, for example, in uh, demons and Satan and hell has significant negative effects on people psychologically not only from the point of view of a decision making um, of decision making and ethics and morals, but also from the uh, more serious point of view of personal anxiety and uh, and depression and concern about um, concern about the future and concern about uh, what will happen when people people die. That's really so interesting. So, in actual fact, yeah, in in, in actual fact. Um, to answer the, the question very commonly raised, not just in our community, by, but of course by, uh, by other Christians as well. Does it really matter what you believe? Well, actually it does. Doctrine literally has an effect. If you really believe it, then doctrine is going to have an effect on the way you live your life and even on your psychological outcomes. This is a really big deal. And as, of course, as Christians who don't believe in, in, uh, in eternal torment in hell, who don't believe in, in Satan and demons... This is obviously strong validation of the benefit of our particular form of belief. Now, um, having said that, there's also there's also the point that um, you, you touched on the idea of uh, lack of belief or weak belief or atheism. 
counterintuitively, studies indicate that strong belief is of best value for positive life, life outcomes, but weak belief or weak faith is actually deleterious to personal, uh, personal life outcomes. And in some cases, having a weak faith can actually be even worse than being an atheist. Now, the reason I say this is counterintuitive because is because most people would think, well, surely at least having a little bit of faith is, is better than having no faith. And there's a reason why weak faith can actually be more dangerous psychologically than having no faith at all. Having strong faith and having no faith at all are at least both positions of certainty. However, having a weak faith is not a position of certainty. And in fact, having a weak faith is typically accompanied by cognitive dissonance. That is, you are constantly aware of a contradiction between what you believe and evidence that can contradict your belief, or evidence uh, that uh, is against your beliefs. And being constantly aware that you believe something which either has a weak evidential basis or which may even be contradicted strongly by evidence places a good deal of mental strain on you. And you end up trying to hold this, uh, hold this belief in the face of evidence against it, which is mentally fatiguing, psychologically fatiguing, and obviously from the point of view of constructing a, um, a coherent and healthy worldview is extremely deleterious. So this is definitely one of the reasons why a weak faith is actually even worse than having no faith at all, because you're constantly in a battle between reality and what you still at least partially believe. Now, interestingly enough, there are a number of passages in the Bible which demonstrate uh, a preference for strong faith obviously over weak faith, but actually even strong faith, perhaps even over, over no faith, uh, and, and over um, even even no faith is, is better than, the, than weak faith. One of the, the most famous passages, of course, is in Revelation, when Christ is talking about the Laodiceans and, and the Laodicean ecclesia, and he, he tells them that you're neither, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one thing or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So this and a couple of other passages indicate that, that um, the, Bible is in, the Bible is suggesting to us that actually having a, a strong position one way or another is of benefit to us, at least having a worldview which is based on evidence and which results in strong conviction is better than having no, uh, it's better than having a weak faith, which is which is constantly a position of doubt. Doubt can be a useful tool, and doubt is obviously um, doubt is 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 a position uh, which is experienced by by all or even all true believers. And of course, there are many indications of of believers in the Bible and faithful men and women of old who had doubts, and God typically t treats them very gently. And of course, Jesus even treated Thomas very gently and, and gave him exactly what he needed to address his doubts. So doubt, doubt in and of itself is not necessarily a, a negative thing. However, existing in a constant state of doubt without being able to 
controversial issues and constantly being confronted with evidence that can that disputes and uh, contradicts your beliefs is extremely wearing and that's the position of weak faith and it's that position of weak faith which is actually more toxic than having um, no faith at all one of the most interesting points of the research you've uh, uncovered uh, is as far as the benefits as you mentioned the belief of or not believing in hell actually improves your life outcomes which many scholars point to as the original belief anyways that there was not an eternal punishment of hell that's right and i'll go further actually um and i want to touch on a point which has been made even in evangelical literature and that is great concern over the doctrine of substitutionary atonement in particular penal atonement Penal substitutionary atonement has also obviously been uh, attacked historically by Christadelphians on, on a range of grounds, not just on biblical grounds, but also on, on the basis of fairly basic morality. And also we have attacked it on the grounds that it leads to spiritual laziness and disassociates people from Christ and disinclines them to participation in his in his life with the, with the consideration, oh, it's already all been done for me. I don't, I don't have to worry. And we've, We've um, often uh, argued that this leads to a kind of an easy believism, like easy in, easy out. It's very easy to to enter Christianity because you think everything's done, been done for you. But at the same time, it can it can encourage spiritual slackness and lead to people leaving Christianity. Kind of a revolving door effect. Very interestingly, penal substitution has come under a lot of attack recently. Um, from a wide range of scholars, and is now starting to come under attack even in the evangelical community. And one of the arguments made is that the doctrine of penal substitution actually has a corrosive effect on faith, and not just that, but a corrosive effect on Christian life. And they are making the same kind of arguments that we have typically made, that in fact it does encourage a, a lackadaisical attitude to faith and it disinclines the individual from participation um, in Christ's uh, life and disinclines people from, from feeling that, that they actually have to make um, a personal effort to obey God's commandments. Now, this is really interesting because, as I said, these are classically the kind of uh, arguments which Christadelphians have made. And it's very interesting to see this um, coming out in the literature. And once again... What this really does show us is that it actually matters what we believe, not just in general terms, but even in specific terms. Yes, doctrine does matter. And John covers uh, these two subjects of hell and uh, atonement and uh, sleeping in the dust and crucified with Christ. And I'll throw that up on the uh, show notes page. Um, One more question uh, before we end. Uh, you mentioned there's kind of financial and economic benefits to uh, Christianity. This is not the same thing as prosperity theology, is it? That's a very good point. I'm glad you raised it. That's exactly right. The The long-term benefits that uh, scholars have identified as resulting from Christianity are not the easy believism and the and the, the facile prosperity gospel uh, which we hear from evangelicals today. In fact, the, um, the literature gets quite complex on this particular issue, and we find that the, the financial benefits were, uh, which accrue, firstly, are very long-term, and 
they are um, incremental. Okay, so it's not like okay, I believe in in in, in Jesus. I, I I pray to God, and tomorrow I'm going to receive an enormous windfall. That's the prosperity gospel. Rather, scholars indicate that there are uh, several cumulative benefits to the Christian life, which combine together to provide a solid social background and, in fact, also a, um, a safety net in terms of a, a broader community, which help keep you financially afloat in, in difficult times and, because you have a, a particular worldview and a particular approach, incline you towards higher education, which also, of course, has a strong positive influence on um, long-term financial outcomes because you're better qualified and obviously able to seek more valuable employment. The details of this are um, obviously a little too complex to go into in the time available right now. But what is important is that, yes, it is far more complex than the, than the prosperity gospel. It's not guaranteed. It's a general trend, and this is very important to, to recognize. And it, it is the result of, over time, of an accumulation of benefits which are all interconnected and derived from being a member, not just um, not just from personal faith, but also from being a member of the Christian community. You uh, do a lot of essays, uh, so many I can't even count them, and they're all great work. <laughs> uh, where can people follow your latest work? Okay, good question. Um, right now, when I write something that I think is particularly worthwhile and perhaps some of some of my higher level work my, my more detailed and, and you might say scholarly work you will find it on my academia profile academia.edu and you can find my my name now there under the, under jonathan burke uh, the benefit of academia is that is that of the academia site is that it's a good way to, to stay current with a lot of um, research from scholars who are leaders in their field Occasionally, you'll get somebody um, putting up a, a paper which is related to some work that you're doing. Not only that, but it also gives your work exposure to other people, in, including scholars. And a lot of my work's been downloaded quite a number of times. Some of my um, some of my articles, in fact, have been uh, have been viewed um, over a thousand times. And it's great because it's a good way of getting your your material out there. It's an easy way for other people to get to it. And at the same time, that the site will connect you with people who have similar interests or who are doing similar studies. Um, last year, I had an article published in a peer-reviewed and refereed scholarly journal in Sweden, a theological journal. And the article I wrote argued against the current scholarly consensus that in some of the early Christian literature, referred to as the apostolic fathers, there is evidence for a non-belief, and in fact, even stronger in some cases, a rejection of belief in a supernatural evil being called Satan and in evil spirits and demons. That's obviously quite an ambitious claim to make, and I, the, I spent um, quite a long time, about two months, writing that paper, and it was... Um, Reviewed by the journal and passed through, it passed through, through uh, two cycles of review before being finally accepted. Now, the reason I mention that is that, apart from the fact that that article is is on um, my academia profile, so people can can download it in the form in which it was finally printed, 
it really demonstrates, I believe, the value of this kind of evidential apologetics that we can actually get an article out which is about one of our beliefs which is still marginal in the Christian community, in the broader Christian community, and in fact, even in the broader Christian scholarly community, we can get out an argument and um, and make a good evidence-based argument for one of our, our beliefs, even though it contradicts the scholarly consensus, and actually get it taken seriously and published. And I think that's very important, and I think a lot of Christians who have the time and the, and the capacity to do this should be doing that so that we can actually perhaps even have some kind of impact on the broader literature and on Christian belief more generally. And that's another reason why I'm, I'm on the Academia website, because I've made a number of connections there through, uh, with people who are very interested in Christian belief, in Christian belief generally, but also in increasingly interested in Christadelphian belief and understanding why we're different and finding some value in our evidence-based approach. And I believe you also run the uh, Facebook page, Discern the Meaning. Yes, that's right. That's that's a page which is basically aimed at hermeneutics, at principles for Bible interpretation, tools that we can use, understanding the tools that we can use, how we can use them effectively, and also looking at basically how we can know what the passage is, what the passage means. This is a particularly big deal when you come to um, debate atheists, who, when you present a, a, an interpretation of a passage in a way that has apologetic value, atheists are very, very quick to turn around and say, oh, well, that's just your interpretation. That's just your interpretation. You're just interpreting that um, conveniently for yourself in order to try and defend your own belief or to try and manufacture evidence. Now, it's extremely important to, to demonstrate to, to atheists in particular that your interpretive reasoning has a sound basis and understanding the tools that can be used in order to uh, effectively derive the interpretation and know that it is, is true is extremely valuable. And again, citing the scholarly literature is very valuable in this context because you can say, because you can say well, all right, you, you might think that this is just something I made up. You might just think this is just my interpretation, as you've said. But in actual fact, I can demonstrate um, using the scholarly literature that there's a broad scholarly consensus that this is, in fact, the correct interpretation. And this is why. Here's the evidence. This is the method that was used. This is how it's been verified. So you're not just arguing with me. I didn't just come out with this out of my own head. But actually, there's a, a very broad scholarly consensus on that on this point. That is the correct interpretation. And yes, it is favorable to my beliefs and you have to deal with it. Now, that's I found that extremely met, um, a successful method of, uh, of countering that particular atheist tactic. And it really does throw the ball back into their court because then they have to do the hard work um, to try and disprove your belief. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on and uh, speaking with us. Yep, it's been my pleasure, Cam. Really happy to do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening and God bless.